This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Well, this is the fifth talk in the series on the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's comprehensive teaching on the practice of mindfulness. During these talks, I'm drawing from a really excellent book called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization by the Venerable Analayo, a German monk who practiced and studied in Sri Lanka. Before moving on to the next line or lines of the discourse, I thought I would just give a brief overview of some of the main points which we've covered already. The the sutta opens with the Buddha's very powerful declaration that the four satipatthanas are the direct path for the purification of beings for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana. This is a very direct and unambiguous statement about where this path of practice leads. He then goes on to give a concise definition of the four mindful abidings, namely mindfully abiding of the body, of feelings, of the mind, and of dhammas, 
And he points out also the essential qualities of mind that are necessary for fully accomplishing this practice. So he says in the Sutta, the bhikkhu, and here bhikkhu means anyone who practices, does not refer only to monks in this context. The bhikkhu abides ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. So these are the qualities the Buddha is pointing to that we need to practice and embody as we undertake the meditation. Abide ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. So we spend some time exploring each of those qualities, some of the previous talks. Now, the Satipatthana Sutta also contains a refrain which is repeated 13 different times. It's repeated once after each specific set of meditation instructions, telling us how to carry out the instructions. And the frequency of its repetition highlights very vividly the importance of integrating these aspects into our practice. I'd just like to read the refrain again. Remember, this recurs repeatedly through the sutta. And in this particular... mm, this particular reading, it's in reference to the body. But with each of the four abidings, it then is said in reference to feelings, to the mind, to dhammas. So in this way, the Buddha said, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body internally, or abiding contemplating the body externally, or abiding contemplating the body both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, or one abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body. But one abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So again, we've discussed in a fair amount of detail what it means to abide contemplating internally, externally, both, to abide contemplating the arising, the passing away, both the arising and passing away. Now I'd like to continue with the the next line. I thought I would actually make it through two lines, but maybe not. That is, mindfulness established Mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So what does this mean? Bare knowledge here means observing phenomena, observing experience objectively without getting lost in associations without getting lost in our reactions. 
It's the simple and direct knowing of what's present without making up stories about our experience. It seems so simple, but the story-making machine is very alive and well in most of us. It's knowing things just as they are. And in fact, this is the meaning of the word, the Pali word, vipassana. In Pali, it means seeing clearly. Seeing things just as they are. This is, mindfulness is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. But very often in our meditation, we miss the simplicity of this bare knowing because we're looking over it for something special. We're leaning into our experience in order for something else to happen. And so often miss what is actually there right in front of us. It's been quite a while since I've told a Nasruddin story, but one came to mind about just this point. So as a teaching story, and maybe it will lodge in your memory, about how we overlook the present in search of something special. As most of you know, Nasruddin was a Sufi teaching figure, and there are a lot of stories about him. Well, it seems that at one point he was a trader going back and forth between Turkey and over some caravan route to Persia, going back and forth, and he just seemed to be getting wealthier and wealthier. But every time he crossed the borders, the customs officials would be looking in the saddlebags on his donkeys, trying to see what he was you know, trading or probably smuggling. And they could never find anything. So they looked and they just saw all the ordinary things. And then he'd come back again across the border with his train of donkeys and they'd look in the saddlebags, couldn't find anything. Meanwhile, Nasruddin's becoming this millionaire trader. Finally, maybe a year or two later, one of the customs officials meets Nasruddin kind of in the town, in the bazaar. He says, well, now you can tell me, you know, you've stopped trading and what were you smuggling over all those years? We never could find anything. And Nasruddin turned to him and said, it's simple, I was smuggling donkeys. <laughs> I was so busy looking for the special thing that they were missing what was right in front of them. So are we like the customs officials or are we like Nasruddin you know, in how we're approaching our practice? coming back to the simplicity of bare knowing, of just what's there. Sometimes we miss 
this bare knowing because not necessarily necessarily that we're looking for something special, but sometimes we miss it because we're conflating the knowing with reactions of desire or resistance, desire or aversion in our mind. And so instead of it being simply bare knowing, really it's knowing with desire or knowing with resistance. And so we miss this quality. Sometimes we miss this quality of bare knowing as our meditation state progresses. So meditation progresses, and at times at least, we begin to enjoy some very powerful and strong meditative experiences. And somehow we give some special value to them, getting lost in them in some way, getting identified in some way, and we lose the quality of mindfulness just to the extent of bare knowing. You know, it might be feelings of rapture or calm or peace or clarity. I want to read, this is from Mahasi Sayadaw. He's talking about our practice as it gets more refined and the possibility of missing the application of this kind of mindfulness. At times, the number of different objects to note may shrink to one or two, or all may even disappear. However, at this time, the knowing consciousness is still present. In this very clear, open space of the sky, there remains only one very clear, blissful consciousness, which is very clear, beyond comparison, and very blissful. Yogis tend to take delight in this clear, blissful consciousness. This is known as dhamma-raga, kind of lust for the dhamma. At this time, it has to be noted, knowing, knowing. And so the point here is that even as we get into some very refined states, unless we can bring that bare knowing to those states itself, we get caught. We become attached. So this is establishing mindfulness just to the extent for bare knowing. Then it goes on to say, and for continuous mindfulness. So the continuity of mindfulness can be established in two ways. And in the Abhidhamma, they talk about the two proximate causes or proximate conditions for mindfulness to arise. One of them 
in a way is obvious. One of the proximate causes for mindfulness is previous moments of mindfulness. And this points to the experience I think we all have of the growing momentum of particular states as we practice them. Whatever we repeatedly practice, whatever state of mind that we repeatedly practice, it begins to arise more and more spontaneously. And again, in the Abhidhamma, this is called unprompted consciousness. It goes from having to be prompted to being unprompted. It's arising, it's arising by itself. From this repeated effort to be mindful, just moment to moment, there comes a time when the flow of mindfulness is happening all by itself. It's happening effortlessly and for longer and longer periods of time. So there's an early insight into the nature of this mind-body process that both comes from this continuity of mindfulness and also strengthens it. So I think it's helpful to highlight this particular insight because it actually is a doorway into a profound understanding. And that is the realization or the insight that in every moment, the knowing and the object are arising simultaneously and spontaneously. There's the rising and the knowing of it together. There's the falling movement and the knowing of it. One is not happening after the other. The knowing and the object are arising together in the moment. The seeing and the knowing, hearing and the knowing, touching and the knowing. It's this pairwise progression. This is the insight into Nama Rupa. When we see this in our practice, and it's directly observable, you know, as you're sitting and you're, you're feeling the breath, pay attention to the fact that just as the breath appears, the knowing is appearing simultaneous with it. As we perceive this directly for ourselves, it really is the doorway to understanding anatta or selflessness. Because we see that there's no one there behind this process of nama-rupa unfolding. That's all, all that's there in any moment is knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, arising and passing away. From this insight, we also begin to get a clearer understanding or appreciation of the nature of knowing itself. We see that the knowing arises spontaneously. When a sound appears, do we have to think, okay, now I'll know it? No, the knowing appears in the very moment that the sound arises. So we begin to understand the spontaneous nature of the knowing arising. And that we simply need to be mindful of the fact that it's arisen. 
And then we also deepen our understanding. And this is a very interesting awareness. We deepen our understanding that the knowing itself is not altered. It's not changed by what is known. So this has very liberating consequences for us, both in our meditation practice and in our lives. The knowing is not changed or altered by what is being known. And we have many experiences of this, and sometimes it's, it's quite dramatic. Have you had the experience at all in sitting where at times maybe there's some discomfort in the body, and you're just sitting in this, you're just knowing the pain or the tension or the tightness, just knowing it, knowing it, knowing it. And then maybe the discomfort goes away and we begin to feel very light or tingling or kind of blissful sensations. And we're just knowing it, knowing it, knowing it. And to see that the knowing is exactly the same in both situations. The quality of knowing, the nature of knowing, does not change. I can't remember, I was... I was trying to remember what I mentioned to you in an earlier talk about my uh, Caribbean trip. Did I talk about that? <laughs> okay. In January. For those of you who were here in January, uh, probably remember what that was like. So I had the opportunity to spend 10 days down in the Caribbean. And it was wonderful. I mean, it was completely pleasant in every way. You know, it's just just a delightful <laughs> delight at all the sense doors. And then I was so there 10 days, and then it was about 80 degrees down there. Came back, and it was 10 below zero. <laughs> you know, it was like a 90-degree temperature shift in three hours. And, you know, it was icy, cold, and windy, and freezing. And, and the most startling thing to me was that it didn't make any difference. Because down there, the mind was simply knowing balmy. Up here, the mind was knowing cold. And the knowing was not altered. And just to see that is really very freeing. One of the best expressions or manifestations of this understanding of the nature of the knowing mind is in uh, the life of Henry David Thoreau. He you know, was quite sick with TB. He died in his 40s. But he had this amazing wisdom. So this is one of his friends writing about Thoreau. He said, he remarked, Thoreau remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. The mind always conforming to the condition of the body. During his long illness, I never heard a murmur escape him or the slightest wish expressed to remain with us. His perfect contentment was truly wonderful. It's very inspiring. You know, where is that perfect contentment coming from? 
from the realization that the mind always conforms to the condition of the body. He's really talking about this nature of the knowing mind. It simply knows. So this is about establishing mindfulness to the extent necessary for bare knowing. And then the phrase goes on, and for continuous mindfulness. So how do we build this momentum of mindfulness? How do we build this continuity? Very simply, and these are the basic instructions that we've all practiced with, we start with basic mindfulness of a primary object. It could be the rising falling, it could be in out, it could be the whole body, it could be sitting touching, it could be hearing sitting touching, it could be hearing seeing sitting touching, many different ways of establishing a base, an anchor, a primary object that we keep coming back to. And then noting any other object that may become predominant. By working with the primary object in this way, we are building up a foundation, we're building a base, we're strengthening the stability of mindfulness, of concentration, of energy. Then as the mind and the mindfulness get stronger, we sit more and more in that space of open, choiceless awareness, simply noting whatever arises moment to moment. Again, I just want to read kind of the summary of this instruction by Mahasi Sayadaw. He said, The actual method of practice in Vipassana meditation is to observe the successive occurrences of seeing, hearing, and so on, at the six sense doors. However, it will not be possible for a beginner to follow these at all su- on all successive incidents, as they occur because the mindfulness, concentration, and knowledge are still weak. So we instruct yogis to note the rise and fall of the abdomen. But when the powers of concentration have strengthened, yogis extend this method of meditation to noting all that happens at the six sense doors. And so we just understand, we use the primary object, we use the basic technique, Continually, we come back to it, establishing the base, establishing concentration, energy, and mindfulness, and then opening in a very choiceless way to whatever arises. So at this point, in choiceless awareness, we could say the mindfulness or the awareness becomes very panoramic. And we move from emphasis on the individual content of what's arising to its more general characteristics. We go from content to process. We become more aware of the process of change, and there's less emphasis on what it is that's arising. All three characteristics at this point become very vivid. So all of this is about strengthening mindfulness, the continuity of mindfulness, 
through mindfulness itself. I said that there were two ways of strengthening continuity of mindfulness, two proximate causes. One is mindfulness itself. The second way is through the mental factor of perception. In the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, strong perception is a proximate cause for the arising of mindfulness. I want to explore what this means a little bit. Perception is the mental quality of recognition. It's that function of recognition. It picks out the distinguishing marks of an experience, of a particular object. You know, we see an object as red or blue or man or woman. It's perception which is picking out what distinguishes a particular experience from others. It creates a concept, red, blue, man, woman, house, car, whatever, and then stores the concept in memory for future reference. For example, we hear a sound. Consciousness simply knows. The only function of consciousness is to know. Perception is what recognizes the sound. Names it a bird then remembers this concept for the next time we hear that same kind of sound. When we look at our experience, it's interesting to notice that the next time we hear that kind of sound, the mind may well jump in with the concept or image bird as a, as a reflection of the perception, but it's also possible for that perception to be there in a pre-verbal way where the word bird doesn't arise, and yet in a pre-verbal way, we know it's a bird. Michael Cunningham, in the book The Hours, sort of described this process really beautifully. He said, everything in the world has its own secret name a name that cannot be conveyed in language, but is simply the sight and the feel of the thing itself. So perception covers this whole range from the actual word or image that we use to recognize it to what we might call the pre-verbal recognition, the sight and the feel of the thing itself. So all this raises, for me, an interesting question regarding the use of concepts in meditation practice and in our understanding. Because on the one hand, we want to establish mindfulness to the extent necessary for bare knowing. That's what the Buddha is saying to do. And that suggests somehow the mind free of conceptual overlay, the simple bare knowing of what's present. But on the other hand, 
the factor of perception with its attendant concepts itself is a proximate cause for mindfulness to arise. So clearly concepts have a place in the development of our meditative practice, our meditative understanding. So the resolution of these two apparently contradictory perspectives, developing bare knowing, free of concepts, using perception with all its attendant concepts to develop mindfulness, these apparently contradictory perspectives can be resolved as we look a little more carefully at the nature of perception. In the Abhidhamma, perception is a common factor, which means it's arising in every moment. When perception is operating without strong mindfulness, which is the usual way an untrained mind navigates in the world, usually we're living in the world of perception, without much mindfulness, and so we're lost in the world of concepts. Then we know and remember only the surface appearance of things. Now, in the moment of recognition, we give something a name or a concept, and then our experience can become limited by that very concept. I'll just give you a couple of examples of this. This is a story a yogi told to me during the three-month course a couple of years ago. They had just built a house in the country. And they moved in, and they heard this wonderful uh, chirping sound in the basement. And they, and they had, seen, had seen some uh, beautiful bird flying around. Uh, you know, and they just kind of got really happy thinking, oh, the bird made a nest in the basement and you know, there are the little birdlets <laughs> and they're chirping away and they just felt really happy. Every time they heard it, they were filled with joy. Yeah, and so they moved in, kind of happily setting up house. And then about a week or two later, uh, they were having some repair guy come for something. He went down into the basement and he came up and he said, you know, your smoke alarm is broken and it's just, you know, making that sound. As soon as the concept changed to smoke alarm, it became a totally irritating sound. <laughs> you know, and they had to fix it immediately. Nothing changed except the concept. Through one filter, delightful. Through another filter, irritating. And nothing changed. We do this so often and we'll, because we live in the world of concepts and the concepts limit or color or condition how we experience things. There's another example which kind of funny and sad at the same time. This was at a retreat I was doing in Australia. And I was doing walking meditation out where... Uh, some cars were parked. 
And there are lots, there are lots of kind of birds in Australia. And so I was walking, and there was one bird right underneath the back fender of a car. And it was looking up at the fender, the chrome, and was seeing its reflection. But the bird didn't know it was a reflection. It thought it was another bird. And so it kept flying up, attacking, attacking the other bird. And of course, each time it, each time it kind of attacked the other bird, it just got knocked back by the fender. And it did this over and over and over again. And I thought, boy, we do that a lot too. <laughs> you know, we have some concept. We're attached to some concepts about things and then hit against it, you know, in our lives. So this is what happens when this strong perception without mindfulness. But when perception is in the service of mindfulness, this recognizing function of what's present, it frames the moment's experience for us, enabling a deeper and more careful observation. It's like putting a frame around a picture. We frame a picture in order to see the picture more clearly. There's a monk named Venerable Yanananda, and he had a nice phrase. He said, he spoke of rallying the concepts for the higher purpose of developing wisdom, whereby concepts themselves are transcended. I just like that notion of rallying the concepts for the higher purpose of developing wisdom. So rallying the concepts for developing wisdom leads us to explore the whole technique in meditation that some of you are using of mental labeling, mental noting. Now, often people associate this technique with the teachings of Mahasi Sayadaw because he very much popularized it in the last century. But this technique of noting actually goes back to the ancient times of the Buddha's teaching, and it has its roots in the Satipatthana Sutta itself. Throughout the Sutta, the Buddha uses a particular grammatical particle in, in the Pali language, uh, iti, I-T-I, that indicates direct speech. So it's like quotation marks. And most of the instructions in the sutta are in this form of direct speech. So it's, it's as if they're all in quotation marks, just as a few examples. In the refrain itself, it talks about mindfulness that, quote, there is a body, unquote, is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So it's like pulling that out and acknowledging mindfulness that there is a body. Later on in the sutta, breathing in, a bhikkhu knows, quote, I am breathing in. Knows breathing in long, breathing in short, goes through a whole long list. 
but it's all in that direct speech form. Walking, a bhikkhu knows, quote, I am walking. So there's the suggestion of a certain kind of, we could call it labeling or we could call it acknowledging, yes, this is what's happening. So this is the use of concepts. This is perception in the service of mindfulness. This labeling, or this kind of noticing, serves in several different ways. First, it serves for the clear recognition of what it is that's going on. And so when we're clearly recognizing what's arising, that in turn strengthens mindfulness, and it allows for a continuity. It's as if we were acknowledging there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. Or as Ajahn Sumedho says so skillfully, the breath is like this, pain is like this, calm is like this, sleepiness is like this. It's just that acknowledgement with concept. Yes, this moment is like this. So this recognition establishes that frame for mindfulness then to really look at the experience. When we were practicing with Saida Upandita, we would need to report very specifically on the different experiences that arose, even within a breath or a step. And I had one interesting experience in the walking meditation because we would, we would need to go and report. In the lifting, I felt this, this, and this. In the moving forward, I felt this, this, and this, and so on. Well, for the longest time, I found it really difficult to see clearly what I was feeling in the forward movement. I knew my foot was moving forward, and I wasn't, I wasn't wandering, and I wasn't asleep, I knew it was moving forward, but I kept looking, well, what is the sensation that I'm feeling? And you may be a lot quicker than I was. It took me a couple of weeks. You know, in each walking period, I would just, well, what is that exactly? What is that sensation? How do I know I'm moving? And the very interest in finding that place of recognition, of being able to label, to see, so refined the quality of my attention. I was looking very, very carefully. And then at a certain point, it was like, oh, that's what that sensation is. And I was like, that was was my big accomplishment for that retreat. (laughs) The labeling, the noting, in this way helps the clear recognition which is in the service of mindfulness so that we can see more deeply. The noting or labeling can help in another way and that is the tone of the note often reveals unconscious attitudes that we're bringing to our experience. 
For example, pay attention if you're using the noting, or using it at times. Notice whether the tone of voice in the mind is impatient, whether it's rushing, whether it's frustrated, whether it's bored, whether it's delighted. Because often these mind states will be unnoticed. They will be the filter on the experience, and we may not even notice that they're there. So the tone of the note reveals that. The noting, the use, the skillful use of concept can help us in another way, which I think is particularly uh, valuable in this context. And that is, it becomes effective feedback for us. Are we really present in a continuous and sustained way? Are we practicing to make the day genuinely seamless? Or do we stop and start many times a day? So what did the Buddha say in the refrain? Mindfulness is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So this is what he's saying. This is the instruction. So how do we know? What's the check? What's the feedback of whether we're really practicing continuous mindfulness or you know, what I've called the more or less mindfulness? Sometimes there, sometimes not there. Now, it's important not to confuse this continuity of mindfulness with grimness. Because it, ha- it doesn't mean being grim, it doesn't mean being heavy, it doesn't mean that it's some burdensome chore we have to do. The continuity of mindfulness can, I think, be much more skillfully understood as a sustained, as a continuous settling back into the moment, being embodied in the moment, as if we were doing Tai Chi or the Japanese tea ceremony or something that's tremendously graceful as a result of the attentiveness. So it's not, it need not be, and it it really shouldn't be, a struggle. It should come out of that sensitivity, that refinement of attention. It's practicing taking care with small actions. Not thinking that some activities are more or less important than anything else. So I think it would be interesting for you, as you go through the day, to see which actions are you quite mindful with, where there is the continuity, and when in the day isn't there. When do you just kind of give it up or let it go or you know, become more careless? I noticed for myself, just from all the years of walking practice, that I find it much easier to stay really mindful whenever I'm taking a step. So even as I'm moving about, I can be pretty mindful of 
the movement of my leg and the touch of the floor. And it was much more difficult to be as mindful for me of what my arms and hands were doing. You know, so that my legs were well trained, <laughs> but somehow my hands and my arms, they were lagging. And so I really tried at times, okay, I'm going to be mindful every time I reach, every time I touch something, just to bring that continuity into those activities as well. This continuity of mindfulness helped through noting, because the noting really gives us the feedback, are we there or are we not there? the continuity of noting is a, is a great mirror for us. This continuity of mindfulness is important. It's essential because it builds the momentum of energy necessary for the realization of Nibbana. And when we hold awakening as being the goal of our practice, the Buddha is saying this is what is needed. This is how we, we need to practice. This again is from Mahasi Sayadaw talking about the importance of this really at advanced stages of practice. He said, to bring equanimity to maturity, a refined balance sufficient to reach Magapala, which is what we chant after the precepts, to reach the path in fruition knowledge, to reach Nibbana. To bring equanimity to maturity, a refined balance sufficient to reach Magapala requires bringing the five spiritual faculties into a refined and enduring balance. During this maturation process, there may be considerable backsliding and fluctuation in the yogi's momentum. Yeah, and I think it's useful to observe that, you know, to see that the momentum does build and then we backslide when we lose the continuity and then it builds again and then backslides. And so both in the beginning stages but also as the practice is getting very strong, we need to keep that steadiness of continuity. Lastly, in terms of how the labeling or the noting or the use of concepts, skillful use of concepts, can help us in our practice in a way that, ex- that strengthens our experience of freedom right now, not only for the realization of enlightenment, but a way that helps us right now in touching the place of freedom. The noting can help us cut through our identification with experience, both when the hindrances are present. You know, if we're able to note, it means we're not identified with them, we're not lost in them. But also when our practice becomes much more subtle and much more refined. Somehow the clear perception of what's present and the noting 
or the labeling in one way or another can help cut through that fixation of mind. I want to read something from Ajahn Mahabua, who is one of the great Thai masters, forest masters. And it's not so much about labeling or noting per se, but it is about how the recognition, the perception of what's happening, the recognition of what's happening became a doorway really to arhanship. Of course, I don't have my glasses, so we'll see if I can do this. <laughs> One day I went to practice at Wat Dhammachedi. The problem of unawareness, ignorance, had me bewildered for quite some time. At that stage, the mind was so radiant that I came to marvel at its radiance. Everything of every sort which could make me marvel seemed to have gathered there in the mind to the point where I began to marvel at myself. Why is it my mind is so marvelous? Looking at the body, I couldn't see it at all. It was all space, empty. The mind was radiant, in full force. But luckily, as soon as I began to marvel at myself, to the, to the point of expl- exclaiming deludedly in the heart, without being conscious of it. Why has my mind come so far? At that moment, a statement of Dhamma spontaneously arose. This too I hadn't anticipated. It suddenly appeared as if someone was speaking in my heart, although there was no one there speaking. It simply appeared as a statement. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is an agent of birth. It was that that reflection, that perception, that came as a concept. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is an agent of birth. And so that that concept cut through the identification even with the knowing, opening the door to an even greater freedom. So this is the use of perception as a proximate cause of mindfulness and understanding the use of noting, the use of labeling. And I would recommend you practice with it. You know, see where it's helpful in these various ways. Work with the continuity, a genuine continuity through the day, and not overlooking the small things. It's also helpful to understand, I think, the limitations of noting, the limitations of the labeling. Because it's not an intellectual reflection. 
it should be kept to an absolute minimum. There's a Buddhist scholar, a great Buddhist scholar in Hawaii, David Kalupahana. He said, concepts used for Satipatthana are to be pursued only to the point where they produce knowledge and not beyond. For conceptions carried beyond their limits can lead to substantialist metaphysics, which means that we carry when we carry concepts beyond what's appropriate, it just solidifies our view of reality. We get boxed in by the concepts we create. You know, and we've seen this so much in terms of concepts of time, of past, of future, of self-image, of self. There are many, many concepts which we have taken too far. So we need to recognize that the labeling or the noting or the proper use of concept is not an end in itself. It's only a skillful means. As our practice gets stronger, as the mindfulness gets stronger, may well notice that there are too many things to note. You know, they're going too fast. The noting is too slow. So at that time, you could try noting one once every ten objects. No, don't, don't try to rush and keep up with the labeling or the noting, but just drop a note in periodically. Sometimes the awareness gets so refined that we're seeing the dissolution, the disappearing of objects so quickly. Even by the time we get there, the object is gone. So the noting falls away. When the awareness is well established, when the mindfulness is well established, it's all happening by itself. And at this point, we could call it an effortless effort. At this point, we really can simply rest in the bare knowing. Rest in the continuity, the momentum of that continuity. Although even then, even at those times, in effortless effort, it's helpful to remember the noting or the labeling or the skillful use of concept as being a technique to employ that's, that's in our toolbox of skillful means. Because even in times when our practice is going very smoothly, Occasionally, the use of it helps us cut through fixations and identifications that we didn't know were there. I'd like to close with just a few lines of Ryokan, the Zen monk and poet. He said, even if you've read through countless books, you're better off sticking to a single phrase. If anyone asks which one, just tell them, know your mind just as it is. So always our practice comes back to that simplicity. Know your mind just as it is.
next week, hoping to get to the next and last line of the refrain. So this is a preview of a coming attraction. This evening we discussed mindfulness is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And then one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So in one way that points really to the goal of freedom. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour.